morning, church. Hope that you're all doing well. My name is Josh. I was one of the pastoral interns this past year. I hope that you're all rested up from the hard work of sports camp this past week. Such a pleasure for me uh, to see the church come together and serve the community at sports camp. I just want to give another shout out to everyone who's involved, the many volunteer hours and the, the hard work that people gave this past week. This morning, I have the pleasure of continuing our Judges series, Whatever Seemed Right. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are good. I ask that you fill us with your Holy Spirit as we hear from your word this morning. Help my words and our thoughts bring you glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Remember who you are. This is a quote from one of my favorite movies of all time, Disney's animated Lion King. For a long time, my go-to feel-good movie was The Lion King. There's a lot of fun moments in the film, but the one that always stood out to me was the scene that includes this line. The scene takes place at the turning point of the film. If you remember, the main character, Simba, believes himself responsible for the death of his father, Mufasa. This guilt leads him to run away from Pride Rock and adopt a lifestyle of hakuna matata, which means no worries for the rest of your days. After growing into adulthood, Simba is confronted by his past and how he essentially ran away from his responsibility as the next ruler of Pride Rock. At the turning point of the film, Simba sees a vision of his father, Mufasa. And Mufasa accuses Simba of forgetting him. Simba denies this. And then Mufasa tells him that he has forgotten who he is and thus has forgotten his father. In the memorable, deep, booming voice of James Earl Jones, Mufasa tells him, remember who you are. In the movie, Simba is the rightful ruler of Pride Rock as Mufasa's son. And in an effort to run away from his perceived failure, he forgets his true identity. This scene has always stuck out to me because as Christians, we also are called to remember who we are. Namely, children of the Most High King. In our passage today, we will see the passing of one generation of Israelites to the next generation. The question that looms throughout the whole book of Judges is will the Israelites remember who they are? Will they remember what God has called them to? And if they do not remember, how will God respond? If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Judges chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 6. We're going to read to chapter 3, verse 6. We're going to read together to find out if the, Israel, the Israelites remember or not. Our passage can be broken up into three sections that forms a kind of sandwich. 
We have Israel's unfaithfulness in 2, 6 to 15. We have the middle section, which describes God's faithfulness, 2, 16 to 3, 4. And then we have another reminder of Israel's continued unfaithfulness in 3, 5, and 6. So let's read first about Israel's unfaithfulness. Judges 2, 6 to 10. Previously, when Joshua had sent the people away, the Israelites had gone to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people worshipped the Lord throughout Joshua's lifetime and during the lifetimes of the elders who outlived Joshua. They had seen all the Lord's great works he had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him in the territory of his inheritance, in Timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. That whole generation was also gathered to their ancestors. After them, another generation rose up who did not know the Lord or the works he had done for Israel. So as our passage starts, we see that there's some progression of the change in leadership. First, Joshua the successor of Moses, dies at the age of 110. Now, it's significant that they bury him in the territory of his inheritance. Throughout the first five books of the Bible, the bones of the patriarchs are awaiting being buried in the promised land. But when Joshua dies, he's laid to rest in the land in which God had promised his clan. Joshua led the people of Israel to drive out some of the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. Just as we heard from Pastor Tim last week, the conquest was not carried out to its entirety as God had commanded. However, they have gained control of some of the land, which is significant for the people who are awaiting the promised land. Some of the land has been captured. But also, as we heard from Pastor Tim last week, the people of God have begun to dip their toes into disobedience, which has the potential to threaten Israel's ability to hold on to this promised land. We're told in verse 10 that the whole generation was also gathered to their ancestors. So everyone who led with Joshua has now died. And as that generation passes away, a new generation rises up. And the text says that they did not know the Lord or the works he had done for Israel. So what happened? Deuteronomy 6 commands that the people tell their children the words of God. When they sit down in their house, when they walk along the road, when they lie down, and when they get up. One of the most important tasks of taking the promised land was to use every bit of energy to impress upon their children how important it was to follow God. And verse 10 tragically tells us that there arose a generation who did not know Yahweh. This is a great reminder for us to take seriously the task of imparting on the younger generations how glorious it is to follow Jesus. To our children, or if you don't have children, or if your children are no longer in your home, to impart upon the younger generations of Christians of what it means to follow the Lord. 
Let's not make the same mistake that this generation made. So let's see what becomes of this generation who did not know Yahweh. Let's read on. Verses 2, 11 to 15. The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They worshipped the Baals and abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed other gods from the surrounding peoples and bowed down to them. They angered the Lord, for they abandoned him and worshipped Baal and the Asherahs. The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he handed them over to marauders who raided them. He sold them to the enemies around them, and they could no longer resist their enemies. Whenever the Israelites went out, the Lord was against them and brought disaster on them. Just as he had promised and sworn to them, so they suffered greatly. Unfortunately, the passing of the torch to this next generation takes a turn for the worse, almost immediately. The narrator tells us that the Israelites of this new generation do what is evil in the Lord's sight. What we are told is that the people of God, the chosen priesthood, abandon the Lord and turn to worship the Baals and the gods of the surrounding people. The first commandment given to Israel at Mount Sinai is you shall have no other gods before me. This first commandment is the only one that is listed as being violated by the Israelites. Now, the surrounding people in Canaan at the time, we know historically, participated in the breaking of many other commandments. We know that they actively participated in child sacrifice, that they brutally mutilated and murdered their enemies. We know that they committed adultery, among many other practices that were contrary to God's law. But none of these are listed, because God is first and foremost concerned with whether or not Israel will faithfully and exclusively worship the one true God. In diligently following the first commandment, the people of Israel will not be tempted to fall into breaking the other nine These actions caused the Lord's anger to burn against Israel. An important element of the conquest narratives in the book of Joshua is that the Lord fights for Israel. When the people of Israel acknowledge the Lord and his power, God fights the battles for them and brings victory to his people. In Judges, when the people of God stop worshiping the Lord as they are called to do, the Lord's anger allows the surrounding people groups enemies of God and the enemy of God's people to have victory over Israel. The text says that they could no longer resist their enemies. Whenever they go out to battle, the Lord brings disaster upon them. To help us understand this section of Judges, we're going to look at a few different places in the book of Deuteronomy this morning to help us understand what God had instructed the people of Israel. Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Bible, is the recording of multiple sermons of Moses, who's instructing the generation of Joshua, who would enter the promised land, in how they should follow the Lord. These instructions were commanded to be passed down to subsequent generations. 
So the passages that we read should have been known by this generation of Israelites. People of God are told in Deuteronomy 28, 15, if you do not obey the Lord your God by carefully following all his commands and statutes I'm giving you today, all these curses will come and overtake you. There's a long list of curses. One of which, in verse 25, says the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will march out against them from one direction, but flee from them in seven directions. You will be an object of horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. So the people of God are explicitly told what will happen if they do not obey. The God that we serve is a God who is just and carries out justice against those who rebel against him. God warned the people what would happen, and they still chose to disobey him and worship other gods. And lo and behold, the enemies of Israel begin to prevail against them. Now, when we read the Old Testament, we read accounts of the disobedience of the people of Israel, it can be tempting to scoff at them, thinking, how dumb are they to disobey God? Didn't they hear what he commanded them? But church, how often do we disobey what God has commanded us? How often do we forget what God has done for us? How often do we desire to do what is good in our own eyes? I know that I frequently want to escape the responsibility that God calls me to. The call for the Christian is a high call. And there are many times when I want to ignore those responsibilities, to share with my coworker, to invite my neighbor over for a meal. I want to embrace the Hakuna Matata lifestyle and have no worries. Church, the same God who administered justice in the days of the judges is the same God that we serve today. And all of us rebel against him in our sin. Try as we may, our hearts continue to lead us to worship other gods. To turn away from the position that God has given us. And to try to fight our own battles. The book of Judges has prominent themes of justice and mercy woven throughout it. The people of Israel continue to prove themselves to be unfaithful to the covenant that they committed to. They forget again and again who God is. But yet, the book of Judges is also about the rich mercy of God. In spite of Israel's continued failure, God raises up individuals to save the people from their enemies. We serve a God who is just, but we also serve a God who is rich in mercy and slow to anger. We also serve a God who knows his people and knows their propensity for failure. God knew that the Israelites were bound to abandon worshiping him. In Deuteronomy 4, he speaks of a time in which they will be in the promised land. And he says, There you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone, which cannot see, hear, eat, or smell. But the God of mercy also makes it very clear that he 
will not leave you, destroy you, or forget the covenant with your ancestors that you swore to them by oath. Because the Lord your God is a compassionate God. That's the God we serve. A God that knows that we are prone to fail to keep our end of the bargain. And yet continues to uphold what he has promised us. A God who sent Jesus Christ to save us from our sins, even when we rebelled against him. Knowing full well that we did not deserve to be saved, Jesus willingly died on our behalf. So let's read how God responds to Israel's apostasy. God's faithfulness. The Lord raised up judges who saved them from the power of the marauders. But they did not listen to their judges. Instead, they prostituted themselves with other gods, bowing down to them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. They did not do as their ancestors did. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for the Israelites, the Lord was with him and saved the people from the, peop from the power of their enemies while the judge was still alive. The Lord was moved to pity whenever they groaned because of those who were oppressing and afflicting them. Whenever the judge died, the Israelites would act even more corruptly than their ancestors, following other gods to serve them and bow and worship to them. They did not turn from their evil practices or their obstinate ways. So the Lord, in his rich mercy, raises up individuals called judges in order to save them from their oppressors. And this paragraph is a good prelude to what we're going to see in the judges' accounts in the rest of the book of Judges. We're going to see this cycle of sin in Judges. We're going to see a generation that serves the Lord, then they're going to fall back into sin and idolatry. They're going to be enslaved, and then they cry out to the Lord. And in spite of their disobedience, God is going to be moved to pity by their cries. He's going to raise up a judge, which most often is a military leader who is going to deliver them from their enemies. Israel is going to be delivered, and then they will serve the Lord, at least for the duration of the lifetime of the judge. After that judge passes away, the cycle is going to continue. So, they, to some degree, repent of their ways, but the next generation acts even worse than the previous generation. And verse 19 says that they continue to get worse and worse. And as the summer continues, we're going to see that downward spiral. So this cycle is going to happen over and over again. But as the cycle continues, the Israelites as well as the judges that are raised up, are going to act even more unfaithful to the Lord than the previous generations. Until, by the end of the book, there is no discernible difference between the Israelites and the Canaanites. In this next section, describing God's faithfulness, we see God give statements about the status of the people groups in Canaan and explain why they are being left. Let's read. The Lord's anger burned against Israel, 
And he declared, because this nation has violated my covenant that I made with their ancestors and disobeyed me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I did this to test Israel and to see whether or not they would keep the Lord's ways by walking in it as their ancestors had. The Lord left these nations and did not drive them out immediately. He did not hand them over to Joshua. So we see the Lord state that the enemies of Israel are not being driven out of the promised land because Israel has violated their covenant that they made with him at Mount Sinai. So there's some groups that were left by Joshua that are going to be left for these subsequent generations. This is in order to see whether or not these new generations will be faithful to what God has called them to and walk in the ways that their ancestors did. The promised land is given to the people of God because of their obedience and loyalty to God Most High. The military success of the nation of Israel is dependent on their loyalty to Yahweh because they have ceased exclusively worshiping the one true God. The land has not fully been given over to them. What I find interesting about this passage is that the Hebrew verb that is translated in verse 23 as the Lord left is the same verb that is translated elsewhere as granted rest. In Deuteronomy 12, we see the Lord telling his people, you are not to do what's good in your own eyes. And then he tells them that when they are in the promised land, he will give them rest from all the enemies surrounding you, and you will live in security. This verb is the same verb that is used towards the nations surrounding Israel in Judges 2, 23. We also see at the end of Joshua that this same Hebrew word is used describing the rest that is granted to that generation who has successfully conquered some of the inhabitants of Canaan. You see, one of the great hopes of the promised land, after the people of Israel are led out of slavery in Egypt and then stuck in the wilderness for 40 years, is the promise of rest, of Sabbath. When the people of God trust him and worship him, the Israelites experience rest. But when the next generation rebels against God, that same rest that was promised for Israel is granted to the enemies that surround Israel. The enemies of Israel need no longer be concerned about being driven out. For the disobedience of the people of Israel has seen them lose God's favor. Now, the enemies of God still exist. And while some Christians seem to be convinced that our enemies are other people who think differently than us or vote differently than us, the Apostle Paul says that we fight not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces that are reigning in this world. Now I wonder what the spiritual forces that are at war with the Lord in the North Shore think. When they look at North Sub, do they think to themselves, we don't have to worry about them. They don't take God's commands seriously. We can rest easy. 
Church, let's not allow our enemies to rest because we do not take seriously what God has called us to. So the God we serve in this description of his faithfulness gives us three reasons as to why the nations are being kept. One main reason and two secondary reasons. We see in verse 20 that the Lord's anger burns against them because they have violated their covenant with him. So one of the secondary reasons is that it's a punishment for their disobedience. They have not followed the Lord, so these peoples are being left. Verse 22 shows us that there is a testing element. The Lord wants to see if the people of God will be faithful to what they have been called to. This additional time, with the nations not being driven out, is also orchestrated by our God to both allow the people of Canaan time to repent and fulfill the Genesis 15 of four generations allowed before the people will be destroyed, as well as using the Canaanites as a test of Israel's loyalty. So will these people who did not see the military victories in the book of Joshua trust God to fulfill his promises? Will they continue to worship the one true God? The next passage gives us our third and final reason. These are the nations the Lord left in order to test all those in Israel who would experience none of the wars in Canaan. This was to teach the future generations of the Israelites how to fight in battle, especially those who had not fought before. These nations included the five rulers of the Philistines and all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites, who lived in the Lebanese mountains from Mount Baal Hermon as far as the entrance to Hamath. The Lord left them to test Israel to determine if they would keep the Lord's commands he had given their ancestors through Moses. So we see in verses 1 through 4 a reiteration that the nations were left in order to test Israel for those who had not experienced the wars of Canaan. The threefold repetition is why I think that the testing element is the primary reason for the nations being left. But verse 2 tells us a third reason. To teach the people how to fight. Specifically, for this new generation who had not fought before. Now, is God concerned that Israel is battle-ready? And that this next generation knows how to best the surrounding nations in combat? That's a possibility. But as we read the events of both the book of Joshua, as well as the narratives throughout the rest of the book of Judges, the combat lessons that are learned are overwhelmingly not about how to win battles. Think back with me to the Battle of Jericho. The people of Israel are commanded to walk around the city for seven days. And that results in the double walls of Jericho crumbling down and the Israelites finding victory. Now, apart from this being God's instructions, this is a horrible strategy to conquer the city of Jericho. The battle is won by God and God alone. Later, in the book of Judges, the story of Gideon, the Lord dwindles 
the numbers of the Israelite army down to only 300 soldiers so that there is no doubt that God and God alone is the victor of this battle. Chapter 2 of Judges tells us that a generation arose that did not know God. God wants this generation to know the radical combat tactic of trusting their God to fight on their behalf. God is not concerned that they have the military maneuvers to best iron chariots or overcome the odds with battle tactics. But God does want this generation and every generation of his people to know and deeply experience the confidence that comes from serving the God who loves us enough to fight on our behalf. So sandwiching the other side of this section on God's faithfulness is two verses that remind us of how unfaithful Israel is being. Let's read. But they settled among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. The Israelites took their daughters as wives for themselves and gave their own daughters to their sons and worshipped their gods. These two verses are a scalding indictment of the people of Israel who are violating the law that has been given to them in Deuteronomy. In fact, these verses are in direct violation, almost verbatim, of Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 5. Let's see them side by side. Deuteronomy 7, starting in 1 through 2. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess, and he drives out many nations before you, the Hittites, Gergeshites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and powerful than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you and you defeat them, you must completely destroy them, make no treaty with them, and show them no mercy. So the Lord instructs them that when he drives out these nations, they must completely destroy them. And we see six of the seven nations listed that they are living among. We'll give them the benefit of the doubt. The Girgashites are not present in Judges 3, so it seems that they have managed to wipe out the Girgashites. But they are living among the people that they were commanded to destroy in direct violation of Deuteronomy 7. Next part, Deuteronomy 7. It says, you must not intermarry with them, and you must not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, because they will turn your sons away from me to worship other gods. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you, and he will swiftly destroy you. So they are forbidden from intermarrying with the surrounding people groups. But we read in Judges 3, 6, the Israelites took their daughters as wives for themselves and gave their own daughters to their sons. We see that the reason for this, for them being forbidden to intermarry, is to protect the exclusive worship of our God. In fact, they're given further instructions in Deuteronomy 7.5. Instead, this is what you are to do to them. Tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, cut down their Asherah, Asherah poles, and burn their carved images. But tragically, 
Judges 3.6, we see that the Israelites worshipped their gods. In Deuteronomy 7.4, Moses tells the people that if they do not obey these commands, his anger will burn against them and they will be destroyed. Knowing this warning, they still choose to rebel. Even being justified to destroy Israel for good, God, in his rich mercy, being slow to anger, raises up judges to deliver the people from their oppressors. Deuteronomy 7, 6 is such a sweet reminder for why God demands exclusive worship and why God cannot go back on his promises. It says, For you are a holy people, belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. Israel is a holy people. It belongs to the Lord, which is why he chose to continue to show his mercy upon them. But God wants his people to be faithful because they have been chosen by him. Which brings us to our big idea for the day. Because God is faithful, even when we are unfaithful, let's choose to willingly obey him. In The Lion King, after seeing the vision of Mufasa, Simba decides to go back and face the responsibility that he has neglected. He decides to remember that he is the ruler of Pride Rock. The book of Judges is a story about the people of God forgetting who they are, choosing to be unfaithful, and a story about God continuing to be faithful. Under the new covenant, as Christians, we are God's chosen people. Each one of us who professes Christ is a son or a daughter of the Most High King. And when we forget who we are, we forget who God is. We are called to live out the covenant that God has called us to. This summer, that call is to push back against the temptation to do what is right in our own eyes, to reject the hakuna matata lifestyle. A call to model to those around us through radical hospitality, what it means to belong to Christ and to not have the freedom to do what is right in our own eyes. That being said, thank the Lord that even when we are unfaithful, God is faithful. As we continue to see the individual stories of judges play out throughout the summer, we can align ourselves to better remember who we are and better remember who God is. For our God is a God who raised up judges to deliver his people, even when they were not faithful to him. Our God is a God who sent his only son to deliver all who believe in him from the oppression of sin. Our God is a God who stays true to his promises, for his nature does not allow him to break what he has promised us. Our God is a God who wants us to remember who we are, we are children of the Most High. We are called to live out the ways of the Lord. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, God, we admit that we have been unfaithful to you. We don't measure up. We don't deserve your mercy, your grace, the gifts that you lavish upon us, Lord. But we thank you that you are a God who holds true to his promises, even when we fail to live up to what you require of us. I pray that we could live accordingly. And through our union with you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would reject the urge to do what is right in our own eyes and to follow your ways. I pray this in Jesus' powerful name.